Before we begin for real, can I admit something kind of embarrassing? When I was a kid, and I mean like, God, how old was I when this episode came out? Pretty young. Um, I used to find this episode very engaging, and I used to rewatch it several times. This is before the VHS thing I mentioned earlier. And the reason, you're probably like, oh, okay, and? Like, come on, Laura, we know you're a Star Trek geek, and you've been one since you were four. But the reason why is because something about the idea of negotiation, bartering for resources, and trade deals was just fascinating to me. Um, <laughs> in fact, hang on, I've got a list over here. Let me just look up what year this was. When did this come out? So Okay, so I would have been five. Or no, that's wrong. Seven. I would have been seven when this uh, episode came out. So there I am, a seven-year-old kid, just fascinated by the idea of trading and whatnot. I used to watch this episode, and I had a rock collection. Gems, you know, rocks I would find, rocks in the area, and rocks that I had bought or that my family had bought for me. And... um I would be like, so this is beryllium and this is such and such. I even painted a few so that this would be dilithium and this would be vivarium or whatever, right? And I would be like pretending to trade along with the episode. Go ahead. Make fun. It's okay. It's just funny to me in hindsight because I've always found trade and economics and bartering and that kind of social dynamic to be fascinating. But the first time I remember being interested in that is when I first watched this episode back in 89. <laughs> now that being said, there's one thing about this episode that I really don't like. And that's been true for a while. Uh, that's not a new thing. And I was thinking maybe my opinion would change. I mean, Lord knows I became a lot more positive about Pulaski this time around than I have been in a while. So maybe my opinion on Rawl would change. Nope. Hate his guts. I don't know what it is, but I do have two theories. First of all, he's a slime ball. In fact, I've actually uh, mentioned this before. Rawl is a classic Type 3 villain. Like, through and through, he is a straight-up Type 3 villain. And that's one of the prominent points of the episode, is that he is not one of the good guys. Uh, it's actually, uh, by the way, quick aside, it's nice to see an episode which really doesn't have a threat of the week. That was a nice touch. But we've got him... And then the actor who plays him feels bland. Now, maybe that was deliberate. Maybe that was the point, you know, to try and portray someone who just is kind of there. But I felt like he was sleepwalking through almost all of his scenes. And I never really bought him as a character. I don't know. Something about his performance plus his character just makes me go, ah, get off the screen. You thought I was going to mention the romance, didn't you? No, that makes perfect sense. That is actually an interesting insight into Troy as a character, which, you know, I'm willing to go with romance in television if you do something with it, and insight into a character certainly qualifies, but let's rewind a bit. What I find really weird about this episode, though, is the historical perspective. This episode establishes the Gamma and Delta Quadrants, which have never really been codified on camera in Star Trek before this, 
Um, this episode codifies the nature of wormholes and how they function, and through some very natural exposition in one scene, and some very clunky exposition in another, establishes the very idea that a stable wormhole is something that doesn't exist, that there's no idea, you know, the very idea of a stable wormhole is a no, which of course would lead to Deep Space Nine. Um, funnily enough, another wormhole that goes to the Gamma Quadrant. It establishes, uh, what else does it establish? The Ferengi, I'll talk about that in a second. And it establishes, and this is going to be a weird one, the fact that Troy loves chocolate. This is the first time that's come up. I would also say, and this is going to sound weird, that this episode establishes that Riker loves Troy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Huh? Those two have been, like, since the very first episode. No. Those two have been flirtatious and have had a previous fling with each other and obviously care about each other and have some friendship. But this episode establishes that Riker, no really, loves Troy in a way that is more than just, you're cute and I want to be with you. In a more, your happiness is important to me and if that means you're with someone else, that's fine kind of a way. We'll talk about that scene when we get there, though. <clears throat> so, the episode starts, and we see Troy metaphorically lowering her hair a bit, which is good stuff. Um, this is probably one of our first real Troy episodes. And as I've said before, one of the things I tend to like is when the episode takes a one of the side characters, so to, so, so to speak, and does something with them. Now, Riker gets a little bit of stuff here, and there's a little bit of stuff for everyone else, but this really is a Troy episode, and thank goodness. I wish they did more with her in it, if I'm being honest, because I felt like Marina Sirtis didn't have a huge amount of room to really breathe as an actress. But she did manage several very subtle points, and that's good, because we know she can do this. She's actually done this before this. She did this back in Season 2, even. So it is good to see her be able to stretch like that. One of my favorite examples of her stretching, to put my, you know, statements where my words are, is she does this thing where she completely changes her body posture, but not like her entire body. It's the it's the relationship between her head and her shoulders. I know that sounds weird, but if you're, if you're watching, you know what I mean. She has this thing where she's just sitting normally and relaxed and talking, and then she'll do this thing where she just kind of chunk, like it locks into position. And you could just see that literal physical shift. It's not actually that overt. It's nice and subtle. And she presents this demeanor completely separate from the other demeanors. And she, she does a good job. We'll talk more about her in a second. Um, but I did like her being like, oh, I just want chocolate. Can I just have a real chocolate sundae? That brings me to another thing I like. The replicators only produce nutritional food unless override. I actually really like that idea because that's, first of all, that's the kind of thing that makes perfect sense in setting. They would have a default setting that is, will produce nutritional food. If you ask for alcohol, you get synthahol. If you ask for a sundae, you get something that tastes similar to a sundae but isn't one. We know in Star Trek that they can emulate a lot of things without some of the detrimental effects of those things, like alcohol and sugar. So I like the idea that the, the, the uh, replicators do that by default. And I like that there's an option to override that, because that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's no different than any other UI in any computer you're using, where it's like, are you sure you want to do this? Yes. Okay, then, right? Um, in fact, in, in computer programmer parlance, that's usually referred to as idiot-proofing, <laughs> or less kind words, depending on which circles you're 
uh, going amount where you know it's like it, it's it's very simple if you type delete as you're hovering a file it will say are you sure you want to delete it that, that little prompt is kind of what I'm talking about here are you sure you want an actual chocolate sundae if you're sure then I will produce it anyways that's cool I like that I like that good setting building so then she just has this oh, oh, I wouldn't want to waste my first chance to see the wormhole and you could tell she's just ugh. Then she gets the conference and her whole demeanor completely shifts. And you could just see her smile. Her fake, fake smile. And that's another reason I give credit to Marina Sirtis here. Because she knows how... This may sound weird, but it's harder than it sounds for an actor or an actress to smile fakely. In other words, to to be in character as someone who is faking smiling. It's like a three-layer acting job there, and she does a good job of it. I also like how Riker beelines for her, because of course he does. He, he knows her. He should know this. And when she puts her arm out, she's like, is there chocolate here? And you can see the crack in her smile for a second. And you can just tell he knows, right? Anyways. <clears throat> so, they mentioned the stable wormhole. There, I just keep noticing there's good exposition in season three. It just is a recurring trend because they just kind of mention, you know, oh, stable wormhole, you know, first one, blah blah blah, and we just get information about that without them flat out saying, as you know, this is the first uh, stable wormhole in ever. However, in the interest of honesty, I'd have to immediately contrast that by the very next scene has the. Uh, lady with the breathing apparatus. I can't remember her name. Forgive me. She's basically a non-character. She shows up, and she says, "As you know, she really does." <laughs> that she does blatant and you know just boring exposition. It's weird in an otherwise well-constructed script. So then the Ferengi show up. Now I said I'd talk about this. There's actually two things. One of which is hinted at, and one of which is established here. The hint is he unloads a big chunk of bars of gold. Now, he calls them gold. The idea of latinum hasn't been invented yet, but the idea of latinum comes from this episode, from the idea of using something as a modicum of, of currency. And now, I'm going to take a quick segue here, just really quick. Bear with me, okay? because some people don't fully understand this, and I've actually been asked to talk about this. And I think this is a good time to mention it, since this is when Latinum's really going to start being a thing. But I believe they actually mentioned Latinum in Captain's Holiday. I'm not sure about that. We'll see when we get there. Anyways, the idea is resources obviously have their own value, and most of what the people are trading in this episode is resources. In fact, the Ferengi barter flat out says, you know, Damon boss or whatever on him, or a goss? I don't know. Anyways, he flat out says, I'll match their bid, and then add the gold on top of that. The idea is, we'll barter for this, and also pay you. Because a currency, this is what I wanted to talk about, a currency is actually an ideological concept, not a physical one. Uh, money, I've always got this dollar right here, this has no value of itself. This is completely worthless. Like, I, I could barely even start a fire with this. This is garbage. Except for the fact that a large, huge, overwhelming number of people say that this is a acceptable form of trade, which doesn't degrade in and of itself. Obviously, this U.S. dollars are actually designed to degrade over time as part of a natural fighting against inflation and to keep money into circulation. But the point being, that's the whole point of what a currency is. It's something that doesn't have value of itself, but it has implied value 
and and is a non-perishable good. You with me? So the idea here is we'll give you a bunch of stuff you can use and we'll also offer you this currency which you can then use to procure other things that you can use, that you can spend on whatever, and that's the value of it. Because sure, I could go to the market and say I want these onions and this stuff and this stuff and this stuff and then try to provide an equal barter value for that. Or I could go to the bank and procure some currency, use that currency in order to say I want this and this and this and this, and have currency left over to use for this and this and this and this because we all establish what the relative value of currency to goods is based on the market and based on a thousand other figures I'm not going to go into right now. You with me? Ergo, currency, the concept of currency, is a very logical and understandable idea, and that's why it's dumb that the Federation doesn't have any. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my opinion, obviously. <laughs> I hate to end on my opinion like that. But I do think it's dumb. I really do. The idea of economics, like, you want to get rid of greed? Okay. I'm cool with that. Say there's no greed in the Federation. Done. I'm with it. I'm willing to buy that. Say there's no economics in the Federation? And I'm going to call bull, because economics is not greed. Money is not greed. Money is nothing more than a medium of exchange. Now, I've talked before many times about how Earth, just Earth, is in a post-scarcity society, to the point where they have no need of anything. Now, that's fine, and that is totally a thing, and I'm totally with that. I am willing to admit that one planet in a galactic power has, has solved all problems and has reached the point of functionally, infinite resources. There are certain things that could threaten that, certainly. Like if, a, like if another billion or two people tried to move to Earth right now, we'd have problems, right? But that's not an issue because that's what the rest of the Federation is for, and not everyone wants to live on Earth. I mean, you can't tell me there's not a reason there's so many damn colonies, right? But the Federation still has finite resources, finite services, and finite transit. Those are the three core points of economics right there. I, did, I swear I didn't mean to talk about economics this long. I apologize. Let, let, me, let me drive back to my point. <laughs> the Federation should use economics. Okay, we're done. <sighs> I'm sorry. This will probably come up, I just realized, this will probably come up later in DS9. And I will talk about it more then. <laughs> because there's actually an episode that is literally all about how stupid it is that the Federation does not have economics. We'll get there. We'll get there. I apologize. Thank you for bearing with me. So, the other thing I want to talk about the Ferengi, though, is this is the beginning of the Ferengi. This is the first Ferengi episode. Do you know that? I've got a list over here. So we've got the last outpost. We are the new villains that are terrible. The battle where I will have my revenge. Peak performance where we will know this secret or we will destroy your ship. Bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. A varying effect in season one, season one, and season two. Three episodes across two seasons. We're in season three now, and as I've said many times, season three is basically inventing TNG. You might remember how many things I mentioned earlier were established in this episode? The Ferengi are another one. Because this is when the Ferengi become the Ferengi that we will know, as, know, of, know them as going forward. The slightly bumbling, greedy, stupid comic relief characters. With some varieties here and there. Obviously, Rom, Nog, and Quark all kind of are exceptions. But you get my point. 
This is the beginning of that, and it all begins with a simple gag that, I gotta be honest, still makes me laugh to this day. Alright, we'll need some chairs. Alright, this is Mr. Security. Oh, he's in charge of chairs? No, he, I'm in charge of security. Well, who's gonna give me the chairs then? It's just a simple back-and-forth gag, but it's also the very first thing we see of the Ferengi in this episode, and that's important. Because if you've just started watching TNG, your introduction to the Ferengi is this comic relief. They even play off the fact that... Well, no, I'll talk about this now. I'll talk about this now. Two of their people go off... I don't remember their names. They're mentioned in Voyager. They, they go off and they, they go through the wormhole and they're stuck in the Delta Quadrant. Now, that's goddamn terrifying. Even as a seven-year-old, I thought that was horrifying. It's like, what? They're, they're in a shuttle the size of a car, maybe a van, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, a bajillion light years from anything. From, from anything they know. They are stuck in one of the most terrifying circumstances possible. The episode goes out of its way to treat that as comedy. You know, it's like, hey, right on schedule. And the reaction to being stranded in hell is, <gasps> you know, like you'd see in a cartoon. And when Damon, whatever his name is, is like, where the hell are my people? Picard's response is, flippantly, oh, tell them to, tell them to go that way. It should only take them about 80 years. The Ferengi are treated like they're a joke in this episode. And that is how the Ferengi will be for the rest of time, basically. So that's how they're introduced to someone who's new. If you've been following the series, they establish these Ferengi as a joke for basically the same exact reason. The Ferengi do not threaten the Enterprise at all in the whole episode. In fact, they flat out call out the fact that a missile to the wormhole will do nothing, and they effortlessly destroy it. And, of course, they mentioned that the whole thing was a fake, a facade. Even when he says, this won't kill anyone, he's like, I don't want to kill anyone. The Ferengi are, in every respect, downgraded from threat to comedy in the entire episode. So anyone who's been following TNG this whole time and saw them in The Last Outpost, The Battle, and Peak Performance gets the, gets the message over and over and over. The Ferengi are no longer the new Romulans. This is probably helped by the episode The Enemy, which we just had, which establishes the new enemy as the Romulans. Right? So, I don't know if this is deliberate. None of my books have said anything about this. But I think this was because this feels crafted. This feels very deliberately, okay, we need to emphasize this point, and we need to emphasize it hard. We have shifted things around. The Romulans are bad guys. The Ferengi are a joke. And we'll use them as comedy going forward. That will be true in Captain's Holiday, Menage Troy, Future Imperfect, Unification Part 2, The Perfect Mate, Rascals, Chain of Command Part 1, Suspicions, Force of Nature, Firstborn, and Bloodlines. All of those episodes, they are a joke in. The one and only time they are even close to threatening is Rascals. And good lord, that's just dumb for so, so many reasons. We'll get there, we'll get there. <sighs> Oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I was reminded of Rascals. Moving on. Moving on. So, Rawl comes on to Troy. Hard. Really hard. Like, if someone did that now, there might be sexual, uh, uh, what do you call it, inappropriate or whatever's being alleged as a consequence of how hard he's like, hey... Now, for the record, I know that some women like that. In fact, I know some men who like that, too. That's fine. I'm not here to cast judgment. 
Um, it is part of why I think he's a little bit of a slime ball, though. Oh, not because he, he of his method of trying to seduce her. It's more like... How do I phrase this? I mentioned that this episode is actually a decent examination of Troy as a character. Because the, the back and forth between her and Crusher is a good example of this. I kind of wish they talked about something other than guys, but whatever. So, because it would have been nice to see some, you know, character stuff for Crusher as well. Lord knows she doesn't get a lot of chances on screen. Um, but no, so we see Troy as someone who really loves throwing herself into the moment. But doesn't want to do that long term. She is a professional God damn it. She has this mask on. She has this lock to her neck and shoulders where she is Counselor Troy. And she constantly tries to help people and take care of people and to be the counselor. She is immeasurably career-minded. She does this constantly. But every now and again, she likes to let loose. Like, she hears the messages. She's like, all right, give me the messages. But I need to let loose a little bit. So I want a chocolate sundae. A real, bad-for-me chocolate sundae. She knows it's bad for her, and she doesn't want to have a chocolate sundae every day. But for this moment, she wants to let loose. You see the analogy here? You see how this lines up? Troy is the kind of person who keeps herself so tightly wound all the time that she needs something every now and again to vent, to just let all of that pressure out of there. And she loves doing it, but that's not what she wants long term. Troy, in fact, if you'll notice, and this is again credit to Marina Sirtis, she starts off completely enamored by Rawl. Like, ah, oh, yes, this chocolate sundae is wonderful. And yet the longer into the episode they get, the more that fades. The more the rush, the more the giddiness fades. And the more she gets back to, well, you know, I mean, this chocolate sundae is nice, but I kind of like a steak to carry on the food analogy. Because that's what she wants long term, a steak, something with actual content and meat to it. That's a bad analogy, because I'm literally talking about saying, but you get my point, you know, something with, with real long-term value to her. She wants that established value. She just wants to treat herself every now and again. So Rawl is more or less literally a fling. And what's funny to, funniest to me is he is the one who seems to have the biggest problem with that. As she slowly falls out of infatuation with him, he tends to try and push her back into it. And for some reason, his usual tactics just aren't working. Which reminds me of another thing. So this is why I think Rawl's scummy. Because he doesn't really love, desire, care for, or whatever her. She's just the latest prize. Rawl's mentality is actually a little bit monodimensional, but I'm willing to accept it because, it, I mean, it, it does make sense for a one-off character like him. He wants to win. This is established so hard throughout the entire episode. All he cares about is winning. Winning at the negotiation, winning with women, winning against other guys. He flat-out goes out of his way to confront Riker and basically flat-out say, I'm going to win. I'm going to win the negotiation, and I'm going to win Troy. That's just what he's about. And what that means is... He doesn't mean the things he says to Troy. He is saying them because it's a negotiation tactic. Make sense? That's why I find it despicable. Because he is basically lying to tell her what he believes she wants to hear. 
And it could be argued she did want to hear that. She wanted that chocolate sundae. But that's not, an, that's not a basis for a long-term relationship. And unlike most of fiction, and indeed Star Trek in general, they acknowledge that in the episode. Like, it, it actually irritates me. DS9 had this problem in season one, I want to say. It was season one or two. With with Mental Imprint Girl. God, I can't even think of the name of the episode. But you know what I'm talking about. Where, where, where uh, Cisco has been... It's, it's just after the anniversary of his wife's death. And suddenly this attractive woman shows up, and he's just like, wah. And for whatever reason, the episode treats us as if he was actually falling in love with someone he barely knew anything about. And, that, and as I mentioned in my rumination of that episode, because it's like months ago at this point, that irritated the crap out of me. I thought that was doing a huge disservice to Cisco as a character. By contrast, this is doing a huge service to Troy's character. She knows that he's a chocolate sundae, and she still wants that. But she also wants something more meaningful. Riker. <laughs> Riker's great in this episode. Riker has this wonderful bit. So, Brawl. Moving forward a little bit. Um, Rawl goes to... Where is it? Where is it? Actually, I'm just jumping all over the place in my notes here. Please forgive me. He goes to Riker. He brags... No, no, no. Actually, just before that. He argues, he argues with Troy, right? And he's like, gaining an advantage with you, you didn't seem to mind then. You remember that? And she, she does not take that well, which he didn't expect. So he does the same thing he always does. He's been doing this the whole episode, if you're paying attention. He puts her on the defensive. He constantly is aggressive in his negotiation tactics. Always the one who tries to open things up and to... He does that kind of thing that I actually despise in real life. I really do. It drives me crazy. When someone says something to you in sort of a passive-aggressive way that is implied as an insult. Now, I, I have trouble giving up with examples of this because I don't think this way, so I, you know, I can't just do it off the top of my head. But it's something along the lines of, you know, oh, well, uh, there you go again. There you go. Put that defenses up. There's the counselor. Now, that sounds like a weird thing to point out, but that is an aggressive tactic. That is portraying her being the counselor as if it's a bad thing. He doesn't say, oh, you're fat. That's easy. That's stupid. Anybody could ignore that kind of an insult. No, he says, oh, you're, you're put, <laughs> there's the counselor again. And that immediately puts her on the defensive. And she reacts this way the first couple of times he does it. She immediately goes back on the defensive because he has basically just attacked her verbally. He does it in a very passive, subtle way, but he still does it. And I hate it when people do that crap. Like, oh, I guess someone like you would like something like that. To, to use another example of this kind of passive-aggressive insult. I hate that crap. Um, so she starts to confront him about the idea of him using his empathic abilities at the negotiation table. Now, he argues back about it, but his own argument flip-flops on which point he's making. And I point that out because I don't think he actually cares about that. I think Rawl is truly amoral that he does not believe in right or wrong, that he does not believe in good or bad, that he does not care about moral or ethical concerns whatsoever, that to him, all it is is winning and what is necessary to get to that point. Now, I don't think he would go so far as to be like stabby-stabby, but that's because even from an amoral perspective, there's no benefit to that, right? So he flip-flops on his argument to her, 
as he pushes her back on the defensive. You, you know, you use your powers for the crew. Oh, but do you tell your captain, your captain, your ship, your safety? And then he immediately shifts tactics and instead says, when you go negotiate, people get hurt. Real bad things happen. Ships fight, people die. Me? I deal in property and trade. So who, which one of us has the ethical concern? And then he gets up and leaves, this is important, before she has a chance to respond. That is also a negotiation tactic. When you refuse the other side the ability to rejoinder. Everything he does is a negotiation tactic. I'm not going to break it all down. Every single action he takes throughout the entire episode was clearly and demonstrably designed to be him negotiating. That's all there is to him. And funnily enough, that is what pushes her the furthest away from him. Because she picks up on this. Troy's not stupid. And by now, the, the Sunday love, puppy love, infatuation, whatever you call it, has worn off completely. In case you think I'm reading too much into this, during Crusher and Troy's conversation, Crusher mentions that there was a relationship where she fell in love in a day and it lasted a week. But then Jack Crusher, the man of her dreams, the man who not a few episodes ago, in the bonding, she was still brought to tears over the thought of his loss and had a child with, Wesley Crusher. That person took her months to figure out. They, they lay it all on the board right there with that conversation. There is a difference between the chocolate sundae and the steak meal. And that brings us to the scene where Rawl goes and confronts Riker over this. This whole episode, he's been playing hardball with all the other uh, people. And looking back at it, it's actually so obvious I'm amazed he got away with it. That he's been playing hardball this whole time and finally says, Okay, I'm willing to negotiate even before that study comes back. Are you? And Riker, I actually said out loud as I was sitting here in this chair watching the episode, of course he's not! Riker's not stupid! Because Riker isn't stupid. He is absolutely not willing to commit to something that is an unknown. He will not buy the, the loot box before he knows what's in it. <laughs> Sorry, bad analogy, but you get my point. And so, Rawl just needles him about that. And Rawl knows all the right places to hit Riker. But the problem is... Rawl really does only care about winning. And so he says, and I'm going to get Troy too. And Riker, who has been looking at them with this face of just as close as he could be to glaring without actually physically assaulting the man, breaks into this huge smile. And, and then he destroys him verbally. God, I actually, no joke, I actually rewound the scene just to watch that again because it was so satisfying watching Riker completely verbally annihilate Rawl. This right here, by the way, is one of the reasons why we, in terms of digesters of fiction, tend to tolerate a Type 3 villain because a Type 3 villain, by d design, is someone who is unpleasant. This is why so many get-off-my-screen characters tend to be type 3 villains, by the way. And so, you know, we, we, we tolerate these kind of characters because we want to see them get their comeuppance. And this is as much of a getting his comeuppance as it gets. Yeah, later Troy rejects him. But Troy's already rejected him at this point. What we see is Riker flat out saying, <clears throat> that's the first bad call I've seen you make. Because... Rawl tr finally tries to push him, you know, I'm going to win Troy. But Riker isn't playing to win. Because this isn't a game to Riker. 
This isn't just about winning. This isn't just another negotiation or another tactic. Riker's an actual person who legitimately loves, real loves Troy, and flat out says as much. I am someone who would be, and more, nothing would make me happier than if you really did bring her that happiness and joy. You won't, of course. She could be a really good thing for you. She could bring some actual meaning to your life, some purpose to your otherwise sad existence. But I don't think you're going to take that. And then he just, here's, here's to the final mile. It's just great. Oh, I love it. I love it. And of course, the unspoken thing is this also applies to the negotiation with the wormhole. Riker cares about the Federation and the betterment of his people and his ideals and concepts. Not winning. Winning might lead to that, but Rawl only cares about winning. And Rawl does win. He wins a questionably useful wormhole. Because, let's be honest, there are still things that this wormhole could be useful for. But it is not a direct, stable pipeline to the Gamma Quadrant, and... That's just not the same thing at all, is it? Yay. So I'm sorry, let me get back to my notes. What have I skipped over here? The hard negotiation. Um, notice that Riker is still continuing his growth as a character throughout all of Season 3. This is like a recurring trend. Uh, season 3, in many ways, uh, in the sidelines, I don't think this is on purpose, is Riker finally having a real character arc across multiple episodes, an arc that will arguably conclude in Best of Both Worlds. Riker is once again being put into the position of a negotiator and a diplomat, and being the kind of person who has to deal with things on a larger scale, greater responsibilities and different types of dilemmas, rather than just a military engagement or an away team or dealing with management on the ship. I like that, and I think it's a good direction to go with him. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. Um, I also like this point here that the Ferengi lack the large-scale kind of resources that the planet needs and wants, but is trying to win by pushing other peoples out of the negotiation. Now, what I find interesting here is that several times they mention how the Federation is just not the right pick for this, and I find that to be a very questionable decision. Right now, the Federation is in an unparalleled era of peace and prosperity, one of which that arguably the Federation's never been in, in all of its history. I had to think about that for a second. I mean, you could argue when the Federation first was incepted, but even then there were still issues, and of course, the Klingons, right? No, they are in an unparalleled era of prosperity, which is admittedly about to end, but, you know, whatever. They don't know that yet. <laughs> Hindsight and all that. And they keep arguing, you know, oh, well, you know, the Federation, military aggression. But by contrast, we're at peace, peace, peace. And yet what I find funniest is that the stated desire of the planet and their territory to use this for is to grow, to finally have a usable, tradable concept or, or product or sale, you know, something, the wormhole. They want to sell the wormhole so they can be self-sufficient. I'm not really sure, like... What I always assumed is what they wanted to do was to basically join the greater galactic community as someone who has something to contribute to that community, rather than being someone who relies on the good fortune of others, which is implied uh, good fortune, uh, good uh, graces, good hospitality of others, which is implied in the episode is what's been happening up until the discovery of this wormhole. So don't you think the Federation is just a logical choice for that? Really? 
Really, really. I mean, I'm sorry. I know that uh, we, we've certainly spoken about how the Federation is not exactly perfect, but they are still in many ways the ide ideal choice for joining a galactic community. Really. I mean, what are your other options? Independent, which means you're probably going to be doing business with the Federation on a regular basis. The Klingons, nothing more need to be said. The Romulans, nothing more need to be said. The Cardassians, Breen, the Zinkethi. I mean, what are your other options here exactly? The Vulcans, oh wait, they're part of the Federation. You get me? And yet they portray this as if the other powers who we basically know nothing about and never really hear about again have something to offer them. The Now, finally going through this with analysis mode, I have an answer to my own question, but I would love to hear your thoughts on why they don't just automatically pick the Federation here. So please, feel free. But my alternate thoughts are that they didn't want to join the, inter the greater galactic community in the strictest sense of the word. They wanted to basically start reaching out to the stars. They wanted resources now, up front, rather than long-term trade deals or regular negotiation uh, benefits or, or favorable treaties or whatever, because they wanted to make it work themselves. They wanted to get space stations or canoe colonies or whatever. And they needed the upfront capital, in the traditional sense of the word, in order to make that happen. In other words, going back to my earlier currency thing, they needed a large amount of liquid assets in order to, or excuse me, non-liquid assets, sorry, using my wrong terminology here. They wanted a large amount of concrete assets that could be usable now. The initial investment in order to actually start pushing themselves into their local system and possibly sector. Then maybe they could think about joining the intergalactic community. That's just my take on it. I don't know. Um, so then stuff happens, and they're stuck in the middle of nowhere, and it's played off as a joke. Uh, negotiation, already mentioned that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, Troy senses the Ferengi's intent in this episode. Did I mention that, that Betazoids can't read Ferengi? That's actually already been established as of now, by the way. That's already a thing. And yet she has no problem sensing it in this episode. And yet... That could be argued away, but let's just say, all I'm going to say is that whether or not Betazoids can sense Ferengi tends to vary more than it probably should. Right up there with beaming through the shields. Moving on. Star Trek, am I right? Uh, ah, I, I, I knew I had one last thing to talk about. I just had to find it here. And the last thing I want to say is, do you like chocolate? I'm, I'm kidding. The last thing I have to say is... Do you think Rawl meant his final lines? No, I don't. I don't think he meant it at all. I also don't think Troy... How do I put this? Because it's more complex than a single sentence output. That's, so give me a moment to phrase this properly. I think that Troy acknowledged that, though he was the Sunday, to continue my food analogy, that it might be possible to convert him into a steak sandwich, or steak, you know, a steak dinner. To make, in other words, through time and effort, work something out so this can be a better and more fulfilling long-term relationship. But I think, A, they already started at a negative because of everything that he was willing to do and because of the way he was treating her, which was not that great, and she acknowledges that. B, because of the fact that she, as she points out, I already have a job as a counselor and I don't really feel like fixing you too. And C, and this is my favorite, doesn't need him that she decides not to bother. In other words, she acknowledges the possibility, 
and even the possible reality of what he's saying, but it doesn't matter. And she says no, and I like that. But I do wonder what you think, guys. As ever, love your guys' thoughts and comments. Do you think he meant it? Do you think he was legit? Or do you think this is just another negotiation for him so that he can win? I think it was just negotiation. I'll go ahead and give my, my opinion on that now, now that I've already asked the question. But I got nothing else. A surprisingly good episode, despite some of the issues in it. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I swear I'll try to talk about economics less in the future. And I'll see you guys next time.